Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Are you confused about that tall wall of soil products you see at the nursery? Garden soils, planting mixes, potting soils, which one do you choose for your plants? Well, we're going to talk with a soil educator, Giselle Schoninger, about the right soil amendments for your garden. Fruit tree questions abound this time of year. We'll be tackling your peach and apricot issues. And college horticulture professor Debbie Flower insists your roses do not have thorns. What? We're sticklers for accuracy on this episode 29 of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, and we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. It's kind of confusing for beginning gardeners when you go to the hardware store, the nursery, the big box store, and you look at all the fertilizers, all the soil products. Which ones do you choose? Which ones do you use? It, it, it can be a very overwhelming task. One company that's been around for decades that has produced soil products and fertilizers over the years is Kellogg Garden Products. And they have an organic garden instructor. Giselle Schoninger is with us. And Giselle, Kellogg Garden Products have been around for so long and people yet still confuse them with the cereal company. They do. You are so right. Thank you for having me on your show today. So we always like to say, you know, the Kellogg Cereal Company, they use milk and we use water. And they are distant cousins back to the 1700s, but there's no company affiliation. We are we they are the cereal and grain company and family and we are the composting and fertilizer company. Exactly. You have uh, soil products for just about any garden application and a, a complete line of uh, plant fertilizers. And over the years, Kellogg has evolved and become almost, if not truly, strictly organic. Yes, we have. We So everything we do, Kellogg has two brands. We have the Kellogg Garden brand, and that is sold at both channels of trade, the independent garden center and the Home Improvement Center. And then Gardener in Bloom or GMB Organics, that is only available at the mom and pop, the independent garden center or nursery. So they're different, two, two brands, two different channels of trade so that we can give the independent garden center their own brand. And we should point out that the reason in many states nurseries are open throughout all this is because they're an essential service because basically they're they're selling food. That's right. We are helping people, you know, grow their own gardens, um, you know, seed. There's been a run on seed, soil, fertilizers, vegetables, fruit trees, anything gardening related. And we have more new gardeners for the first time. And you know, that's part of a new gardener feels overwhelmed when they walk into the store, like you were saying earlier. You know, there's a wall of soil. There's a wall of fertilizer. Often you can't, maybe you can't even find somebody to help you in some cases because many of these accounts, these stores are understaffed, no fault of their own. It just is our new reality. So starting with the basics, if somebody wants to do a garden, do a small garden, maybe do a raised bed, a small raised bed. Start with tough plants. You don't need three to five tomatoes. 
do one or two, do something that you know is hardy, that you know is disease resistant and, and start small so that you can actually develop your intuition buy the products, the best products that you can afford to buy, because that is whatever you start with, that's the basis for your success. So soil is everything. Fertility is everything. Watering properly, being intimate with your garden, walking your garden. Let the garden tell you what it needs, because once you develop the intuition, you will notice if a leaf is starting to look pale or mottled or, or sunburn, there's, a, there's something that needs to be addressed. And if you address it right away, you can typically solve that problem very quickly. One of the questions I get the most, and you are the perfect person to explain this, when people are staring at those walls of uh, soil amendments they may see at the big box store or independent nursery, they'll see products labeled planting mix or potting mix or garden soil. What is the difference? That is a great question. Okay. A potting mix or a potting soil means we can direct plant into it. It's ready to go for a container because when you have a container, that container mix has to be precise. If you have too much, let's say too much chicken manure in it, those roots can get burned uh, because it has to be just right for in a container. One of the primary differences between a potting soil and a potting mix versus a garden soil and a planting mix is the perlite or the pumice. That is for aeration and for drainage for in a container. A garden soil, a lot of people want to plant directly into a garden soil and that is the wrong application. A garden soil is for in-ground planting of flowers, vegetables, and herbs, and you use it 50-50 in your native soil. And a planting mix would be used in a similar fashion in ground, 50-50 for tree shrubs and roses. And then a raised bed potting mix would be something that you would that you can plant directly into. Like we were talking earlier, you were saying that some of your raised beds now after three, four, five years, now they're producing the best. It takes time to get the motor running in your raised bed. And so the more that you can add before you plant, the better off you'll be when you actually do plant that raised bed. Exactly. One of the worst things you can do for your raised beds is nothing. And especially during the off season, if you're only growing food during the spring and summer and early fall, and then you're not doing a winter crop, don't let that soil lay bare. Top it with something. It, it could be a commercial mulch. It could be ground up oak leaves that you put on top. It could be a cover crop, but cover your soil with something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even digging your veggies into it. You know, one of the uh, things that uh, I am very happy about that has changed over the years, I've been doing these type of garden shows for nearly 30 years now, and it used to be people would ask, what can I buy to solve such and such? Now, more and more people are saying, what can I do to solve such and such? Because it's 
all a matter of vigor. If you have a vigorously growing plant, it's going to be able to repel disease and insect problems much better. Absolutely. And part of that is how we feed, right? If we use an organic and an organic is completely, it's not, you know, people think of the word, you know, organic and and they have all these different connotations about it. It's it's about working with Mother Nature, okay? It's about all organic fertility is about feeding the living fraction of the soil, all the life in the soil. Those organisms feed on it, break it down, and then they meter it up to the plant. Whereas a synthetic is designed to feed the plant at the expense of the life in the soil. And it also force feeds a plant when you push a plant to grow with a synthetic the initial thought is well my plant's bigger it's it seems like it's healthier but the cell structure and that leaf and that flower and the stem is much thinner making it easier for insects to attack that plant or or fungal problems or disease pressures to attack a plant that is force fed when it is synthetically grown the organic is the way to go because it's working with Mother Nature and you have a thicker cell structure minimizing insect and disease attack. So a lot of it does come down to the basics. So when you start with the right product and you grow a plant with the least inputs, but the, the, the most beneficial inputs, your plants are going to grow healthier. Kellogg has a product. It's called Grow Mulch. What makes that such a superior mulch? So Grow Mulch is a two-in-one. I love the name. It's been around for 95 years. And if you look at the first part of the name, Grow, means it's a planting mix. You can use this for trees, shrubs, roses, and ground covers in the ground 50-50. But it's also a mulch. And when you lay it on top of the soil, it, it, keeps, the weed, it keeps the weeds, minimizes weeds, maintains moisture at the root zone, which is really one of the primary reasons that we do it. And what it's made from is recycled forest products, aged arbor finds, composted dairy manure, composted poultry manure. And then we use also a dehydrated uh, poultry or chicken manure and then feather meal. Covering it with one of our products for Gardener and Bloom is our soil building conditioner. That's a great one to just lay on top of the soil. Um, and you could use grow mulch on top of the soil if you wanted to as well on a raised bed. It's a little coarser product, um, but you have many options for that. You know, I'm very intimate with my garden. I know when I see an issue, I, I recognize it right away, and that takes time to develop. Um, so we just want to encourage people to continue learning. You know, our website kelloggarden.com and there's three g's in the middle kellogg has two garden has one we have great articles we have this thing called the organic garden nation and you have to sign up for it but nobody talks product it's not a kellogg commercial or anything not at all it's gardeners from across the country and i mean you will see some of the most beautiful gardens you've ever seen and people share what works for them what doesn't it's remarkable what that has done to educate, you know, people of all ages. And so our, our website, I'm very proud of our marketing department and the group of people that are, are supporting us in that venue. 
Uh, so if people haven't checked it out yet, please do. And we're a national brand now. I think you know that. On the Kellogg side, we are a national brand, so people can find our products all across the country. I think you've said this before, and I'll even say it again. It's all about the soil. It truly is. It is all about the soil. I And I, I feel so honored to... This is a very humble industry. To be able to teach people about soil, it will teach you so much about your own body. Because, you know, we're a garden. And I think we're now learning that we need to take better care of our own garden, which is ourselves. How do we feed ourselves? How do we hydrate ourselves? How do we care for ourselves? I think we've kind of all slowed down in a way that maybe none of us would have ever thought could happen to us. And I think keeping ourselves healthy right now is so important. The garden is one of the best teachers other than our parents and our family. The healthiest food you can eat is the food you grow yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Giselle Schoeninger, she's the organic gardening educator for Kellogg Garden Products. Find out more. You can visit their website, KelloggGarden.com. Kellogg has two G's. Garden has one G. KelloggGarden.com for more information about their product lines of soils, soil amendments, fertilizers, and much more. Giselle Schoeninger, thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thank you so much. I'm delighted. Have a wonderful day, Fred. Here on the Garden Basics Podcast, we like to answer your garden questions, and we have a couple of fruit tree questions that have come into the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Gloria writes in and says, I have an apricot tree. Seedlings are falling. They're growing in the ground all around. Should I replant them? There's about 20. They're all about five inches tall. I don't know what to do. Phil Purcell's with us from Dave Wilson Nursery, wholesale grower of fruit and nut trees available throughout the country. And apricots and seedlings. So what is Gloria going to end up with there? Well, she's going to end up with a brand new variety of apricot. (laughs) Basically, she's kind of doing her own hybridizing without even knowing about it. That's what these new seedlings are, right? They're just chance offsprings of the fruit itself. So we don't know what that apricot was possibly cross-pollinized with anything else. And that's kind of how, you know, it's trial and experimentation. That's how we come up with new varieties. That's not to say that those those seedlings will go ahead and make a nice sturdy tree. That's a whole nother subject. But, I mean, she wants to try and, you know, maybe see if she can come up with a new variety of apricot. That's a way of doing it. I probably wouldn't spend too much time on the process, though. So basically, um, dig them up, pot them up, and uh, give them to your friends. Label them a mystery apricot. Sure. <laughs> That's, you know, and then, uh, like I say, since those trees have not been grafted, we don't know if that apricot's going to be a nice, sturdy tree in, in the ground. But, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, it might be kind of fun to try out. And it might not produce any fruit at all. It, it's, you know... It's farming. Well, let's uh, define for people exactly what grafting is, because I bet many people don't realize that a lot of fruit trees are hybrid varieties that uh, consist of of basically two different fruit trees. There's a rootstock, and then there's the uh, scion, the budwood, that was uh, grafted to it. Yeah, so, you know, when people will go take a look at fruit trees, they'll notice that maybe about three or four inches above the soil line, 
there'll be like a little knot. And then, you know, off to the side, it looks like a, you know, a branch is going. Well, that's where we graft our fruit trees. And what we do is we select specific trees and they have to be in the same family. So for peaches, we select specific peaches that the fruit might be horrible, but it might make a good anchor for the tree or it might be, uh, you know, resistant to a certain type of insects or such. So we use that as what we call the understock or rootstock. And then we graft the variety that is a good tasting variety onto that rootstock. So that's how fruit trees are, are produced, you know, at our nursery. I would say 95% of our trees are grafted. All right. What about that other 5%? Is there an apricot tree that will produce true from seed? Uh, we don't have anything in our mix. Most of our, what we call cutting grown or on their own route would be kind of like figs and pomegranates. And people have experimented at home and taken cuttings and, and, you know, planted them. And next thing you know, they have, you know, a black mission fig. And that's kind of how we do it at the nursery. But for most of your stone fruit and palm fruit, so apples and pears, they really need to have a good anchor. And that's why we use specific rootstocks to, to graft onto those. Because soil conditions are different throughout the country, moisture conditions are different. And so the root, rootstock is chosen in, to better able live in that particular soil. Absolutely. That's the whole idea of rootstocks. Patty writes in on the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page and asks, when can I prune my dwarf peach tree? Dwarf, by the way, is in quotation marks. We have harvested a good crop of Babcocks. And Phil, uh, I think maybe uh, Patty's being a little sarcastic here by putting dwarf in quotation marks, like maybe the tree is no longer dwarf. Because uh, when it comes to Babcock peaches, uh, I don't recall... uh, a, a dwarf babcock is there such a thing there is there isn't so there is a little you know misunderstanding between dwarf and standards now there is a semi-dwarf babcock root uh fruit tree and generally that's put on citation rootstock and that's the semi-dwarfing rootstock we use but for a true dwarf there are only what's known as miniatures genetic dwarfs that are just inherently small growing. Some retailers will like to promote what they call an ultra dwarf. And believe it or not, it's actually uh, like a peach tree that is grafted onto a standard rootstock. But when it's early in its growing stage at the nursery, they pinch it down low. So the branching comes down low and it looks like a dwarf fruit tree, but that will become a standard fruit tree. Kind of answer your question on when's a a good time to... uh, you know, prune that, that Babcock tree, we always recommend summer pruning. And by pruning in the summertime, you're going to keep that tree nice and low. So you're able to to pick almost like a fruit bush. So you want, you know, you want to be able to pick your fruit. Best time to plant is when that tree is actively growing. That way, you know, you can keep to the height where you want it. And you're able to go ahead and produce new fruit wood down below as opposed to letting it grow too tall and next thing you know it's just the birds and squirrels getting the the fruit so the general rule of thumb is uh let the tree grow until it's taller than you and then start snipping everything that's just out of your reach put your uh, pruning shears up above your head and and cut off the branches uh where uh, your your arm ends 
Yep, absolutely. In fact, you know, my uh, my house, it's uh, most of my plums, you know, half of them have already fruited. So that's why I'm going to do this upcoming weekend. I know it, it's, you know, the middle of, of July, but that's a perfect time to go ahead and, and prune those trees so that they'll be able to callus over before uh, the winter time happens. But now you're keeping control of the, the height of the tree. And honestly, you're saving yourself a lot of pruning time in the winter. Well, that brings up the question then for a lot of people that may have a peach tree or another fruit tree that's out of control that is 20 feet tall. Should they be pruning that in the summertime? Well, something like that is going to be a tree that big. If you do cut it and cut it back in thirds, you tend to open it up to too much sun and sunburn. So in cases like that, you might want to try to bring the, the size down in the winter and then, uh, you know, kind of work its way down. It sounds odd, but that's what you would do. If you prune it too hard, a mature big tree like that in the, in the summertime, like I say, you could do a lot of sunburning inside. All right, so save it for the dormant season then. Those that one saves to the dormant season, All yeah. Right. But again, as you point out, you want to do it in thirds, so you'd be removing one-third of those out-of-reach branches per season. Correct. Do it all at one time. You're taking away all the leaves, which photosynthesize and, you know, produce a healthy tree. So you don't want to do that. Phil Purcells with Dave Wilson Nursery. You can find out more information about all their fruit trees and nut trees at DaveWilson.com. Phil, thanks for a few minutes of your time here. Yep, no problem. If you want to make some money with your friends, take them out to the backyard and show them your rose bushes. And say to that person, you know, I'll bet you five bucks or maybe something more valuable. I'll bet you a bottle of hand sanitizer that my roses don't have thorns. And that person's going to look at you and, and say, what do you mean? I'm staring at the thorns on the roses. Now, Debbie Flower is here. Debbie Flower, retired horticultural mm-hmm. teacher, uh, been gardening in many places across the United States. Who wins that bet? The guy who took his friend in the backyard and, and placed the bet is, is correct, that roses do not have thorns. Okay, then what are they? Right, what are they? Roses do have a, 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 a pointy uh, growth on them, and as do many other plants, and many people will call all of those pointy things thorns. But botanically there there are different uh, pointy things on the plant the pointy things are for protection as you might expect they um, can protect their plant from us getting close to them but they are different types of of pointy things and on a rose it's called a prickle uh, a prickle occurs on the outside layer of cells of the green part or the non-woody part of a plant so it can happen anywhere. It can be anywhere that's green, anywhere on the stem, anywhere on the the um, uh, sepals, which are what what cover the flower when it's in bud. Uh, on the leaves uh, of a plant, there are um, prickles can occur wherever there's a green part. The green part is covered with what's called epidermal cells, and ep- epidermal cells cover the entire outside of that green soft part of the plant. Uh, we humans have epidermal cells. That's our skin. So if you think about all the green parts of a plant being coated with a skin, that skin, every cell of that skin can make a prickle. 
So basically, so, then uh, a prickle yeah. is a, a prickle is a, is a plant zit. Right. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and they're easy to take off. Okay, uh, you just pop it, right? <laughs> <laughs> One of the places I taught school also had, when I was head of the department, actually also had a floral design program, and that was actually a topic of conversation, how to get the prickles off of the roses that were used in the flower arrangements. There are tools you can buy for it, but the easiest way is to take a towel, hold the stem with one hand, and and put the towel around the stem and slide it down the the stem, the rose stem with the other hand, and all the prickles come off. They're very easy to remove. Now, as as a child, I recall... uh, Picking off the bigger prickles uh, off the rose bushes uh, fairly easily with my bare hand, and then uh, licking the back of it, sticking on, sticking it on the end of my nose, and running around like a rhinoceros. <laughs> I love it. What a picture that brings to mind. <laughs> okay, then. Okay, so, so roses have prickles. Who has right. who has thorns, and what is a thorn? Well, there's one I want to talk about in between. They're alphabetical in my head. I have to make mnemonics remember things. (laughs) Okay, all right. So prickles first, and that's that's on the youngest tissue, the green tissue. Spines are second, and spines are modified leaves. So they occur where a leaf occurs. They have the same plumbing in them that a leaf has in them. And the thing that we, the plant we know with, are most familiar with that has spines is cactus. And if you look closely at a cactus, all the spines are occurring around it in a circle, and they uh, often overlap, When and that has a function. When the cactus is in need of water, it's very dry, the stem to which these, these spines are attached, the stem shrinks, and the spines get closer to each other, and they shade the stem more. When there's lots of water available, the stem's plumps up and these um, spines move apart and more sun can get to the stem and the stem in a cactus is where is the green part and that's where the um, food is made so it, it um, besides having a defense role for the plant it uh, actually helps to shade the plant when the plant needs shade does it so cactuses have spines the um, uh, edges of, of sharp some leaves that are sharp like holly leaves those are spines. Mm. Um, barberry has spines. There, there are many plants that have spines. Do spines yep. also uh, aid in photosynthesis? Um, I don't believe so. That's a good question, and I don't have the definitive answer for it, but I'm thinking about all the spines I know of. Even when they're on the tip of a leaf, if you hold that leaf up to the sun, you can typically see light through it. So I, I don't believe they contain chlorophyll, which is the molecule needed to make uh, plant food, but I don't know that for sure. Okay, but seeing now a spine is a modified leaf, you'd think it might have a function of a leaf, and one of the big functions of a leaf is uh, converting sunlight into energy for the plant. Right, right. Typically, though, when this plant has lots of spines like a cactus, another part of the plant takes over the food-making ability. Mm. And in the case of a cactus, it's the stem that is doing that. Okay, so we've done prickles, we've done spines. All I know about I know whatever... Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I'll Don't go ahead. Move up in the alphabet to thorns. Yeah, well, I was going to say where we did the clue would be it has to be below S in the uh, in the alphabet, and, right? And it's thorns. So thorns then are what? Thorns are modified branches. Hmm. Sometimes they actually have leaves on them, and then uh, they'll the tip of that branch is sharp. Sometimes they don't, like on a citrus plant. The uh, thorns, the the 
defense part, the pointy part, is a thorn, and it's often very green. So it can have the ability to do photosynthesis, or it can have leaves on it itself. It can be woody, can become woody, just like a branch can become woody, can have bark on it. But they are modified branches. Uh, so citrus have them, pyracantha have them, flowering quince uh, are armed with thorns as well. So three different types of structures, all there to to keep us animals away from from those plants to harm us if we dare get near the plant. But have the, they have different names? And yes, roses have prickles. All right. So I will uh, sum this up then. Thorns are modified stems. Spines are modified leaves, and prickles are plant zits. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. All right. <laughs> I want a three-page paper on plants. It's due tomorrow. (laughs) There you go. The difference between thorns, spines, and prickles. Now you people can go in your yard and make some real money now. Gambling on gardening. All right. Debbie Flower, always a pleasure. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Oh, yes. It always is a pleasure. Thank you, Fred. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, hey Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, would you please? Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.